You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Good morning, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing? I'm wonderful. Good, as usual. What Uh, is going on in history's world? Well, I'll just tell you. This past week, I was with some of my kids and grandkids over to Bear Lake. Oh, beautiful place. Beautiful place. For for people who don't know, Bear Lake is kind of on the uh, northwestern corner of Utah and half of it. And the other half is in the southeastern part of Idaho. Right. So half the lake in Idaho, half in Utah. But I've got to tell you, Zeb, uh, just north of there a little ways is a town called Montpelier. I've been there many times. And they have a museum there. It's the Oregon and California Trail Museum. I didn't know that. Great little museum. And they actually have a whole bunch of paintings by Gary and Bev Stone in there. No, I did not know about that museum. Whereabouts in it's, town it's is it? It's just right in Montpelier. I, I couldn't tell you exactly. But really? Now, another thing that's really cool there, there is a bank that was the last bank robbed by Butch Cassidy. And they have turned that into a little museum. Really? And uh, it's just a fun little museum. You go in there, and it's the last bank that he robbed. But they have a book that's been written by Butch Cassidy's great nephew. And I'm about in the middle of that book right now, reading about Butch Cassidy. And I'm anxious to get to the end to see what they say about whether he died in Bolivia or oh, not. why didn't you cheat and read the ending no, no, first? No. no, I'm not that kind of guy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, but i got to tell you. August 11th, uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Montpelier, they do a Butch Cassidy bank robbery reenactment. Now, you said Butch Cassidy three times without the Sundance Kid. Were they not teamed up at that time? You know, they weren't. They... You know, the movie shows them being together all the time, and I don't think they were that much together. Where did they meet? I, I'm not sure yet. Oh. But you I, haven't come to that I part come of the to that book. Part, yeah, okay. yeah. All right. So, but another kind of cool thing on our way home, we uh, went through Soda Springs, and just south of that is a little town called Grace. Yes, and I a, love that town. And a little further south is a little smaller place called Lego. Yep. And that's, that's where they make all the plastic pieces. Okay. No. <laughs> oh, Lego. Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay, so L A G O. Oh. Okay. I'm sorry. So. We found this little cemetery, and in this cemetery is my great-grandfather, John Radmore Turner. No. And uh, there were five little gravestones because they had five children that died as infants. Oh, and my. So him, his wife, and five of these infants, and that was my grandpa's dad. So, so it would be your great-grandpa. Yeah, my great-grandfather. Wow. So he was kind of neat to... What years was he on the great face of the earth? Um... They left England in the late 1800s, got to uh, out west here. You know, I don't remember the exact dates, but I'm going to say just late 1800s. And he passed away? 19, like, I want to say like 1906 or something. Wow. 
So anyway, it was kind of neat to go see it was. some of the family's uh, graves. Did you always know that he was buried there? Yeah, but I, I just see. had never been to the cemetery. I see. So, so You really do live the life of Dr. History. <laughs> I do, and I love it. You do, I can tell. <laughs> so we're going to talk about uh, the townsmen. The townsmen. The people that started the towns. Oh, okay. Okay. So, you know, a new western village is really kind of indescribable. I mean, it's an army of men and women, doctors, merchants, millers, barbers, bankers, blacksmiths, and all these people poured westward in the second half of the of the 19th century. Uh, they were going to transform the wilderness into a thriving land, and as one editor said, to get rich if we can. Now, I have a question for you before you get started. How were sites of towns chosen? Well, I think we'll get to that. Oh, you always say that. We will. But they started towns by the thousands and mostly on the prairies and plains where they looked around. They saw that farming looked like it would be good. And they laid out streets. But they had fires and floods and famines. I mean, it it was not easy starting up a a town. I mean, they had the outlaws, the desperados. uh, But mostly, you know, they were serious men and women that were... Uh, honest, uh, trying to just build a new society in the wilderness. They just wanted to make a place to raise their families, really. But the western towns were slow getting underway. Uh, You know, the mountain men, uh, really, the only thing they had was trading posts. They didn't really have towns. They just had a, like, Fort Hall and Fort Bridger. So, a city like Montpelier over in Bear Valley area, uh, that was probably formed and thought of because of the trading of the mountain men. Yeah, originally that's where it all started, yeah. But uh, when they saw, and you know, that's a beautiful valley over there, a great place to raise cattle and farm. But, you know, the first American town to be incorporated in the West was actually Oregon City, and it was the creation of a fur trader, an Englishman, by the name of Dr. John McLaughlin. Now, he directed the affairs of the British-owned Hudson's Bay Company, the fur company, years and years ago in the Oregon country. Well, when American pioneers and missionaries began to filter in there in the 1830s, the company actually told him, do not help the newcomers. They were aware that their presence would uh, affect the, the decline of the fur industry. So oh. they, they told him, do not help these newcomers really? that come out. Yeah. Really? Have but, you been to Oregon City? Uh, yes. I have I've many been up times. There. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, this Dr. McLaughlin felt certain that the future of Oregon, the country would uh, inevitably belong to the Americans. He kind of saw the future. And eventually he would lay out a town and sell lots to the incoming settlers. So he actually helped settle Oregon City. Now, in the autumn of 1842, McLaughlin hired a pioneer by the name of Sidney Moss to plat the town, mark off its streets and lots, at a site besides the, the falls of the Willamette River. And Moss, this guy, was totally unqualified as a surveyor. He got the job only because he owned a pocket compass. This was your surveyor. Well, two years later, McLaughlin uh, got a guy by the name of Jesse Applegate, and he was actually a genuine surveyor uh, to enlarge the town, to set it out. Well, unfortunately, Applegate had lost his surveying instruments on the way west, and he had to make do with a just his eye and, you know, looking at things, and he had a rope that was four rods, which is 66 feet long, Okay, that's what he used to lay out this town. Now, keep in mind, Zeb, his rope stretched in wet weather and shrunk in dry weather. Uh-oh. 
So this explains why Oregon City kind of has some oddly shaped uh, blocks. That's interesting. Yeah, he just used this rope to plat out. And so that whole town or city, Oregon City, was laid out with a 60-foot rope. 66 feet. Four rods. Yeah. Holy cow. Well, McLaughlin himself retired from the Hudson's Bay Company. He became an American citizen uh, in 1851. And by that time, uh, you know, other towns had sprung up uh, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. And as the decade wore on, new town buildings were set off, uh, you know, by the push of the pioneers heading out that way. Yeah. And then, of course, right in there... Wasn't Oregon City the re- kind of a, a receiving city for all the pioneers? I, I think it was a lot, because yeah. then they spread out, of course, yeah. from every direction. Yeah. But, you know, the Civil War slowed the Western movement for a while. But after this uh, storm passed, the real rush began. Homesteaders and townspeople surged into the prairies and plains by the tens of thousands, you know, filling up the regions of Kansas, Nebraska, Dakotas, of course, Montana, Idaho, all along the Oregon Trail on either side. And the spacing was no accident. The way they set up towns, and then you asked about this, because it allowed a pioneer farmer to make a trip to town to buy nails, have a wagon fixed, get a haircut, consult with the county commissioner, and still get home in time to feed his livestock in the evening. Right. So the towns were spaced apart just far enough so that a guy could get to town and back in one day. So with a horse and buggy or a wagon, a team of horses, you're talking 10, 15 miles. Probably, yeah. yeah. So a lot of other towns on the prairies and plains uh, came into being as kind of layover points for people uh, and goods that were in transit. In other words, you know, uh, Teamsters that were hauling goods, you know, they'd only go so far and they'd like a place to stay for the night. Well, I would imagine the number one prerequisite of finding a site was having water. Exactly, yeah. But, uh, and there again, the first really transcontinental routes of passage were blazed by the the immigrants, you know, of course, the Oregon Trail and the other trails. But the Missouri River played a huge role. Uh, Hundreds, and we talked about this, steamboats carrying passengers and goods uh, on the first leg of the cross country, as far as they could go, uh, up into Montana. But these uh, land and water routes uh, afforded natural stopping places where uh, men stopped for whatever, it, uh, you know, just to rest and to get goods and one thing or another. And when you talk about goods, Ken, ask, answer this. I would imagine like on the Missouri River, you talked about that a couple of weeks right. ago, that the goods had to be there first before the people showed up. Sure. And, and that took a lot of coordination. And that's why there were so many of those steamboats that uh, they probably carried more goods than they did passengers in some respects. Really? And so, you know, uh, people could charge, I guess, what they wanted when they got there for their goods. But, you know, gradually the railroads reached across, you know, and in 1869, uh, uh, a... Uh, you know, a good location was if you were by a railroad. Yeah. Uh, Ellsworth and Dodge City, Kansas, uh, they had some really big boom times in the 1870s and 80s because they represented the meeting points of cattle drives from Texas right. and the railroads that would haul the beef to market. You ever been to Dodge City? I never have. Oh, go. Please, yeah. you'll love it. Well, and Sioux City, Iowa, uh, founded in 1854 on the banks of the Missouri, uh, it hit its stride in 1868 yeah. when a Union Pacific Spur Line arrived and, of course, transformed that into a major port for steamboat yeah. traffic. Yeah. 
Now, Ogden, Utah was actually twice blessed when the Union Pacific came through in 1869, and a railroad from Salt Lake City connected there with the Transcontinental Line in 1870. So Ogden became a huge stopping-off place, At one time, I read someplace, and maybe I'm completely wrong, that Ogden actually was thought to maybe grow bigger than Salt Lake. It could have been, because it was the main hub yeah, right there. Yeah. And there was a, a, a line that went out uh, to what we call Kelton, Utah, right, right. which brought a lot of goods into us here in southern Idaho. Right here, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, like I say, the railroads actually created towns by the hundreds. Uh, Cheyenne, Laramie, Wyoming were two of the communities launched by the Union Pacific uh, as, as the tracks went out in 1868 and 69. And conceiving and selling towns in the West was a big business. Uh, so, you know, settlers or speculators, they could stake out 320 acres, okay, a plot. Right. And the land was divided into lots, which were sold to prospective townspeople. Really? So, you know, they really wanted to promote their town. Yeah. So, anyway, whatever the circumstances that gave birth to a new community in the West, a predictable cast of characters appeared, and you're going to be surprised this, Zeb, but... Guess what the number one thing that they wanted? Uh, okay, let me take a guess. I would imagine, well, first of all, a general store. Nope. How about a newspaper? You would have Instead of a general store? Yeah. yeah. Really? So here's why. Uh, one of the first citizens of any community was the editor because he was hired by the promoters to promote the town. So he would write all these praises, all these great things about the town and beautiful, the river, the streams, the whatever. And people would say, wow, that looks great. I want to go there. So basically he was the first and original advertising agency. He was, exactly. But, you know, frequently a newspaper, like say, preceded the town itself. No kidding. There's a guy named Adams. He printed his first issue on a riverbank in 1854 and wrote that, quote, all the type in present number has been set under an elm tree. When the first house in town was built, the paper moved in. So he wow. he was out in the open setting up his newspaper. Really? So, But, you know, an editor's performance uh, was closely watched by the townsmen. All right? Uh, they had some pretty strong feelings about somebody that wasn't doing a good job. In fact, in 1878... There was a guy that was not doing a very good job. He printed with worn out and broken type. The publication was so hard to read that the residents, get this, Zeb, invaded the editor's premises, seized him with the intention of tarring and feathering him. Oh, my. No tar was available, and no one was willing to contribute the contents of a precious feather bed, but a way was found. Uh-oh. They coated him with sorghum molasses and feathered him with sand burrs, both of which were in abundant local supply. Then, they're not done. Oh, my God. They, uh, the punishment by riding him around town on a wooden rail. Okay? The editor sold the paper thereafter and left for parts unknown. Now, wait a minute. The molasses and oh, sand burrs oh. and... How do, you wa- how do you wash that off? <laughs> Boy, I don't know. And but, then they put him on a rail. You know, uh, I've heard that saying before, but anyway, uh, yeah, he, he left. <laughs> but, you know, any... And he commun- started the Times News. Yeah, uh, yes, I don't know. <laughs> You know, but any community that hoped to grow needed a hotel, which yeah, kind of along those lines, yeah. to co- accommodate prospective townspeople as well as people going through. And a hotel keeper was generally among the first r- arrivals, and his hospitality was often 
a little bit crude. Uh, there was a guy named Sidney Moss opened the first inn west of the Rockies after platting Oregon City in 1842. His establishment did not possess a single bed or chair. Guests paid him $5 a week to sleep in blankets on the floor. What kind of amenities, though? You really bring up an interesting subject here. We ought to do a series of what the various businesses were really like, like the Dodge House in Dodge City, Kansas, or maybe a restaurant and all that kind of thing. Yeah, but, you know, a Frontier Hotel, a guest, uh, one guest who was a little concerned about the condition of his towel that he was using. Was of t- his towel? Towel, you know, to wash your face, you know, yeah. a towel. Uh, he was told uh, by the owner, he said, well, he says, there's 26 men used that towel before you, and you're the f- first one that complained. 26? Yeah. <laughs> so he was the first one to complain about yeah. using a towel. But oh anyway, so that's kind of... Uh, Hygiene was lacking. Yeah, yeah, you know, but yeah. at that stage, you know, I guess if you were able to sleep on the floor inside under a roof, even if it was on the floor with your blanket or saddle blanket, I don't know. When did the concept of like a hotel with a bed and a washstand, etc., when did all that... Well, I think, you know, just gradually as the towns became established, then there were more hotels. And so, obviously... Uh, what did you just do? Oh, that was my rubber band. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here about five feet across the desk from him. He's shooting me in the face with his rubber band. Here, have it oh, back. Thank you. That's how I keep my place in the <laughs> Holy book. smokes. But, uh, you know, now another thing uh, that is kind of interesting... Groceries, you mentioned. Yeah. Okay, a lot of these stores actually would put up a false front. Oh, a false front building. Yeah, yeah because yeah. it made it look bigger. Yep. It stood yep. out more. Yep. Um, so, you know, the, they just did whatever they could to, to get business and... Uh, Help out the seller. What about the food, though, for the groceries in a general store? I mean, how did they didn't have distributors coming out of Salt Lake City or whatever? Well, as I mentioned, you know, over here, not too far from us, is Kelton, Utah, where the end of the railroad came, and people would go over there maybe once a month to get goods that came in on the train really? and take them by wagon back to Elba and Alamo, Declo, uh, Oakley, all those little towns. So I think that happened a lot throughout the West. Is the end line of a uh, uh, the end of a train line, you know, the where it ended is where a lot of people just come to get their goods. Really. So, and those places pretty much dried up after the railroad kept going farther and farther. I would imagine uh, items like fruit, apples, and oranges, and pears, and everything. Boy, they were in hot demand. Oh yeah, uh, and if you lived. Obviously, in Oregon or someplace like that, where you could grow your own fruit. Yeah. But even here, you know, people could grow apples and yeah. oranges and peaches. And you look down in the Hagerman Valley, not too far from us, uh, there were places all across the West where uh, they could they could grow fruit. And of course, they grew their own gardens. Everybody had a garden, even the uh, military the forts. Uh, they would a lot of times have their own gardens. Let me ask you: in the state of Idaho, what's the oldest town? That is still going in the state of Idaho. Oh, boy. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but what is the oldest established town? You know, I I hate to admit that I'm not sure. I have heard, and I cannot remember. I know that up in Alamo, that Tracy store is one of the oldest stores in Idaho. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of a fun little place to go into. They make a great sandwich. But, you know, I should know that. And for some reason, I'm thinking it's up in northern Idaho. I did, too. But I, I cannot recall exactly hmm. where. That, that's a homework question for me. I'll find out.
Okay. But uh, anyway, so the townspeople, they, like say, some towns just blew up, and, you know, and don't exist at all. Nothing left. In fact, some towns uh, actually, uh, uh, if things didn't go the way we wanted, they would pack up and haul everything out to a new town site. What was the biggest fear factor? Now, I just finished reading a book, and i got to go find that for you, uh, that uh, the disease cholera, they had to be very careful with the water conditions and everything in towns. Literally, it could wipe a town out. Yeah. Cholera was huge because they didn't know what caused it. Right. Uh, So... And just like we've talked about some of the Indian tribes, that uh, some of the smaller tribes would be completely wiped out yeah. uh, because of, uh, uh, you know, cholera. Epidemic. And water, again, uh, comes back to being, I still think, the number one source that they needed for a city, a town. Exactly. And, right. and at that point, if they had enough water to start irrigation projects, oh. you know, start canals yeah. and even maybe small dams. Uh, so, of course, watering the fields, crops. Absolutely. Was, and that would ev- obviously help uh, establish Kind of makes town. you wonder how any town in Texas ever got started. <laughs> <laughs> well, Las Vegas. I mean, Las Vegas was a watering hole. Yeah, really. Across that desert, you know. And You've opened up another Pandora's box of programs to where we really could do a lot of research on the towns and how they were laid out and yeah. uh, the water supplies and the different businesses coming in. Yep. Holy smokes. Yeah, it, it it was a huge part of the Old West, the yeah. growth of the Old West. They didn't go to Seven Eleven at they 9 didn't. o'clock at night. No. Nope. Wow. Anyway, that's... Uh, that's a really good story. I yeah, I like that. It uh, kind of gives you an idea of what life really was like, you know, and how tough it was. Now, I understand that you are not going to be here next week. Right. And we have the possibility of getting a gentleman on the air that does historical... Uh, Podcast. Podcast. Yeah, John Hagedorn is his name. Yeah. And uh, just a plug for his webpage, his podcast, it's a thousand and one. Uh, what did I put that? Heroes, legends, uh, History. histories, and, and mysteries. Yeah. So look that up. Yeah. He's got a lot I'm of. I'm to try to get him on next week. That, yeah, he would do a great job for you. And uh, do you have anybody you want to thank or acknowledge this week? Uh, Normally every week you do. I want to thank Brian, and I want to thank John. And the people over in Montpelier were super friendly Really, at that museum, the museums I went to. I've got to go to that. Those are great. And actually in Paris, Idaho, which is yes. uh, a little town. And it a, does not have an Eiffel Tower. No. it's a, It has a really small little museum that's right. really cool. They have an old... LDS Tabernacle that was really? built uh, way back a long time ago that they give tours through oh and is built with uh, rocks taken for, or stones taken from the mountains. And You really do live the life. I, I, oh, one more thing. Did yes. I tell you? There's a, a uh, melodrama theater called the Pickleville Theater or something like that. I've heard of that. That they put on the funniest, greatest melodrama. I mean, I laughed so hard. It, Pickleville. Pickleville. I'll have it's to right by, right by Bear Lake. All right. Dr. History hit a home run not only out of the park, but across the street. There he goes. <laughs> Great job. Thank you. You have a good day, Zeb. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
My Rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.